The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Truth is a matter of perspective in this electrifying conspiracy series. Deep State returns Sunday, April 28th, only on Epic's. Get the channel or get the app. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 25th. Today, Joe Biden finally declares his candidacy for president. The complications of grieving on social media and a game-changing Jeopardy contestant. Former Vice President Joe Biden finally made it official on Thursday. He's running for president, and he's rounding out a field of 20 Democratic candidates. Charlottesville, Virginia is home to the author of one of the great documents in human history. We know it by heart. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So he had this three-and-a-half-minute video of him sort of talking directly to the camera. Matt Weiser covers politics for The Post, and he was watching as Biden's campaign pushed out this announcement video on social media. Charlottesville is also home to a defining moment for this nation in the last few years. A large chunk of this video is dedicated to Charlottesville in 2017, where white nationalists march and are confronted by protesters. Their crazed faces, illuminated by torches, veins bulging and burying the fangs of racism. And Joe Biden sort of speaking against that and reminding people of President Trump's reaction. And that's when we heard the words of the President of the United States that stunned the world and shocked the conscience of this nation. He said there were, quote, some very fine people on both sides. He talked a lot about President Trump, which is different from a lot of the other candidates who didn't confront President Trump in their announcements. That's what really struck me about the video is that it was almost entirely about President Trump and his feelings of disdain toward Trump and and where Trump has taken the country. Yeah. His whole frame is not, here's what I want to do for the country. It's that I'm not this guy. And I think other candidates have dealt with that in a different way, immediately talking about their own vision and almost running, you know, without Trump in the equation. Joe Biden is is doing it the opposite. And really, that's a theme. This is his third time announcing for president. And he's always done that. Uh, He did that um, uh, talking a lot about President Reagan in 1988, talking about President Bush. And now he's doing the same with President Trump in this video. So you went back to watch the announcements that he put out during his previous presidential runs. What were those announcements like? It's interesting, in in 1988, I left Fawn Hall in Washington to be here with Joe Biden. He was introduced by uh, uh, Senator Daniel Inouye from Hawaii, and he's introduced as the young fella. Uh, (laughs) Joe Biden. Joe Biden's a young fella. And those of us who are almost senior citizens look upon him as a young fella. Joe Biden at the time was the generational candidate. You know, he was the new face. He was in his early 40s at the time, the young senator who was running and running against the oldest president at that time, Ronald Reagan, running to replace him. So there's a lot of differences, obviously, now. He's on the other end of that that spectrum. But in, in 1988, he was at, he's at a train station in, in Delaware. 
asking God's blessing for ourselves and asking for our country that we love. They introduced, you know, a dozen different elected officials. It felt very, you know, old-timey in terms of how politicians made their announcements at that time. That he will raise America up on eagle's wings and that he will bear it on the breath of a new dawn and make the sun to shine on it. God bless you and thank you. In 2008, he did a video, which was cutting edge at the time. And it was similar to the one now, where he's, he's sitting and he's talking directly to the camera. President Bush has dug America into a very deep hole. And at that time, he's running against the legacy of President Bush and the Iraq war. This administration's mishandling of the war in Iraq may be the greatest foreign policy disaster of our time. But all of them have a theme of him sort of running against the prior administration and also sort of speaking to the country's character and to unity and these messages that were better than our current state of politics. And for a decade led by Ronald Reagan, self-aggrandizement has become the full-throated cry of this society. And this is no time for the divisive politics George Bush has practiced in America. We are in the battle for the soul of this nation. But if we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House, he will forever and fundamentally alter the character of this nation, who we are. And I cannot stand by and watch that happen. As he's jumping into this race, what is the status of the primary Democratic field right now? It's big. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate how big. Uh, you know, he is the 20th candidate in the race. And it's undefined, r- really. Uh, and, and it's very fluid. Uh, Joe Biden is atop most of the polls nationally and in, in the early states. I think he views himself as uniquely positioned to counter Donald Trump. He has the same appeal that Donald Trump did in some of the blue-collar areas, Pennsylvania, Um, Ohio, Wisconsin. And his campaign advisors view that as a signal of strength. He's been at the top consistently. Because he has all that name recognition from being vice president. It's been consistent, but he hasn't yet sort of faced the test. And, And without the glow of President Obama, I think there's a lot of love for him and that he was very good in a partnership with Barack Obama now he's standing on his own, and and his past campaigns have ended in pretty big failures. So I think it's a it's a test for him over these next couple of weeks in in terms of what type of candidate he's going to be, and how he can perform in a field that is very accomplished and has lots of options for voters to turn toward. Well, that's the thing. It feels like if Biden is going for the idea that he can win over the white working class vote, that he can appeal to a lot of of middle America states, there are other candidates who are saying that they can do the same thing. There are lots of very experienced candidates. There are lots of white candidates. There are lots of people who also have kind of white working class backgrounds. And so it's not immediately clear that 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 is actually going to work for him in terms of setting him apart from the rest of the field. It sets up a a big test for the party in this debate over how much to focus on that white working class. Joe Biden will argue that the party needs to do that. And I think other parts of the party are going to argue we've moved in a completely different direction. We're not the party of 2016. I think that Biden campaign's argument is 
some of these other candidates will get looks. They'll get a lot of interest from people. But ultimately, the voters will end up turning toward Biden in the end, viewing him as the best alternative to President Trump. What is his fundraising strategy? It's another thing that he's doing that is counter to the rest of the field. Most of the field is going after small dollar online viral fundraising. Joe Biden, on his first day tonight, he is holding a fundraiser at the home of a top executive at Comcast. Which has become a bad look for a lot of candidates, right? That they they recognize that there is a risk to going after those huge donations from rich people because it looks like you're in the pocket of of the 1%. Yeah. And Joe Biden, he's doing that. I mean, he's going to have a lot of fundraisers. He's got a lot of fundraisers already scheduled. And they're high dollar fundraisers. Uh, A lot of candidates have sworn off that type of style of fundraising. I think he recognizes that he doesn't have the online lists, the online component that a lot of these newer candidates have. And so to raise money, he's doing it the old-fashioned way. Then, you know, he's the old-fashioned candidate. Has never been that prolific of a fundraiser. It's never been something that he's been that good at or enjoyed that much. So, but I think he recognizes he, he's starting from scratch on on fundraising, uh, and it's going to be a, a big issue for him, whether it makes him vulnerable to attacks from his other fellow Democrats that he's raising money from moneyed interests in a way that they haven't. On the other hand, because those other candidates are not doing that, there's a lot of moneyed interests eager to donate to somebody, Mm -hmm. and and Joe Biden is eager to take their money. And one of the things that Biden is going to have to deal with is the fact that he is a candidate who has been in politics for a long, long time and carries a lot of baggage. And a lot of that has been brought up even before he's even decided to run. Yeah. In the 1970s, it was busing. He was against busing students to create more racial harmony in schools. Uh, and, and in the 1990s, it was criminal justice reform and the Anita Hill hearings. And that he it, didn't do enough to support her. And Right. He's been sort of... And, on- and even now, you know, we, we've been talking about how he relates to women and ways that he's made women uncomfortable um, over the course of his career. Being, being out of step with the Me Too moments, uh, you know. And so I think... He is trying to explain some of those things, not necessarily backing away from them or fully apologizing for them. He's not apologized to Anita Hill, for example. He still defends his busing views. And on criminal justice reform, he's sort of explained it and, you know, regretted some portions of it. But it speaks to Biden's longevity in democratic politics, where many of those positions were part of the democratic orthodoxy at that time, but now most certainly are not. And so I think that's part of the vulnerability that he has as his opponents bring up some of those positions that particularly a lot of younger voters are not familiar with. They don't know that Joe Biden had those views and still holds some of those views. So I think that you'll see a lot of that in the debates and in the next couple of weeks and months. And I think you know how he faces that and which candidates choose to go after him is going to be really interesting over these next couple of weeks. To what extent do you think Joe Biden is going to run as a third term of Obama? I think that's going to be a very big theme. So far, it's been interesting in this campaign that Obama doesn't come up all that much. Joe Biden will. Uh, he already this morning has images of him with Obama on his Instagram page. 
I think he's going to be talking about a lot and reminding people about things that they liked about President Obama. Has Obama said anything about him or has he said whether he's planning to endorse him in the primary? Obama is not planning to endorse, but he did. His, his spokesman put out a statement this morning that was complimentary of Biden, but not endorsing of, of Joe Biden. They did not offer statements when other candidates got in the race. So it's more than other candidates have gotten, but I think Joe Biden would— it's still hedging a little it's bit. still hedging, and there's, there's no endorsement. So what can we expect from Joe Biden going forward in this early part of the primaries? He's got what is going to be a fairly brisk schedule, I think, over the next week or two. He's going to head to the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and and start campaigning there. Uh, he's got a lot of catching up to do. Other candidates have spent a lot more time there. They've hired up big staffs, and they're off and running. But I think the other thing about Joe Biden is the unpredictability. You never know what he's going to say, which some people find refreshing. I think some of and, his— And is a lot of the reason why Trump has appealed to a lot of people. So yeah. maybe it'll work for him, too. It, yeah. I think that is the excitement of covering him because you don't know what he's going to do or say. There could be a gaffe at any moment. It, it, it's an unscripted kind of style that he has that could potentially drive his campaign advisors crazy. Matt Viser is a political reporter for The Post. On Monday, Biden is expected to hold his first public campaign event at a union hall in Pittsburgh. In 2016, many voters in the traditionally Democratic districts outside of Pittsburgh voted for President Trump. Dear tech companies, I know you knew I was pregnant. It's my fault. I just couldn't resist those Instagram hashtags. Hashtag 32 weeks pregnant. Hashtag baby bump. You probably saw me Googling holiday dress, maternity plaid, and baby safe crib paint. But didn't you also see me Googling Braxton Hicks versus preterm labor and baby not moving? Please, tech companies, I implore you. If your algorithms are smart enough to realize that I was pregnant or that I've given birth, then surely they can be smart enough to realize that my baby died and advertise to me accordingly. Or maybe, just maybe, not at all. Regards, Gillian. My name is Gillian Brockell. I'm the Retropolis reporter at The Washington Post. And in December, I delivered a stillborn child. Gillian posted this letter on Facebook in the days after her delivery. It was something that she felt that she needed to write. Because even after she shared publicly on social media that her baby had died, she kept being inundated with Facebook ads that were related to new motherhood. Ads for nursing bras and strollers and DVDs to help your newborn sleep through the night. Ads that reminded her again and again of what she had just lost. Tell me about your decision to write this publicly. Oh, I mean, it was hardly a decision. It was um, less than two weeks. I mean, I can barely even remember that time. I was still in just such a, a fog of um, acute grief and despair. And, um, and uh, I don't even know if I would have done it publicly if my husband hadn't been napping. I didn't know what was going to happen. I had no idea. So by the I posted it, my husband woke up. We went to our first grief counseling session and when I came out, 
there were 2,000 retweets. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And the people who were responding to this, what what were they saying? Um, you know, people were mostly um, appalled and sending condolences. Privately, I've gotten hundreds of messages, um, emails, Instagram messages, Twitter DMs from women and men who have gone through the same thing, who have lost a child and have experienced just that that crush of advertising that doesn't change. Some women shared with me, you know, I told Facebook about this in 2013 when my child was stillborn, and I guess they haven't fixed it. I think that we all know that Facebook is tracking us Mm -hmm. and that they are targeting ads to what they think our life circumstances are. What do you think happened here? I mean, obviously, you know, like I said in the first line, a lot of it is my fault. You know, I I was posting pictures of my baby bump and using hashtags, and I was doing a lot of Google searches not in private mode, you know, of, of just baby stuff, things I wanted to buy, and then they would, you know, show up five minutes later in my Facebook ads. Because they knew you were a huge opportunity to right. buy a bunch of baby-related stuff. get all of it, yeah. What was weird, though, was that in the first week and a half, you know, I mean, I was hardly even using social media at that point. I was mostly just in bed crying. But when I would use social media, it would the ads would be the things that I was searching for right before my baby died. It, you know, the holiday dress, you know, like th- that kept coming up. But once I, I was like, okay, I guess I've got to reteach the algorithm. And so I would say, this ad is not relevant to me, hoping it would, you know, figure out as fast as it as it could that, that I was no longer pregnant. I didn't want maternity wear ads. And it did, quote, learn that I was no longer pregnant. But it, it seemed like what I taught it was that I had a living baby. It just assumed what was the logical next step and, right. and what it thought your life path would be. Right. And there, there, are, um, there are some apps and websites who have sort of quick exit strategies. So there's the What to Expect app, which a lot of pregnant women have. I have. There's, there's one button that you can click to say, I've had a loss. Boom. You're, and then it stops sending you they, notifications. They stop sending you emails. Stop. All of it is mm-hmm. done. Um, I've heard from other women that the bump is the same way, that you can click one thing to say, I've had a pregnancy loss, and it stops. And they, they send you to a living person who says, I'm sorry that this happened to you. So then with Facebook and with its targeted advertising, why why haven't they figured that out, that this happens to a lot of women and they need to be prepared for the possibility that, that they should not be sending those types of ads to people in those moments? I don't know. When the letter went viral on Twitter, there were a lot of women saying, you know, this is a factor of like not having any women in the room when algorithms are written. I think maybe it's also a factor of not having any women who are moms or interested in becoming moms or trying to conceive in the room. 
I mean, this is the thing, you know, the the Facebook vice president, Rob Goldman, you know, he tweeted back at me and said, I'm so sorry for your loss. Here's the place in Facebook where you can turn off parenting ads. So they have a thing that theoretically turns off parenting ads. Did you try to use it? I already knew that that existed and had tried to find it before he contacted me, and I couldn't. And anyone who's ever grieved a loss knows how hard it is to even think about basic things, to even figure out how to put your toothpaste on the toothbrush when you're grieving. And you want me to be, like, down in the corner of my Facebook? Like... It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, that in that but, moment on the on your list of priorities, trying to right. navigate your Facebook settings, right, probably probably come pretty low. Right, and so I had already tried to find it and failed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then then he told me where to find it. I theoretically turned off parenting ads, and the next day I got an ad in my Facebook for adoption agencies. Hmm. Uh, The day after that, I got an ad for matching father-son onesies, which I would have loved to have bought for my husband and my son. And it's it's still happening. It's not happening as much as it was, but You're I'm still, still getting ads like that. Oh yeah, I t- I have I I get bugaboo ads on my Instagram and my Facebook. I get I got a latched mama nursing bra a couple weeks ago. Wow. Has this experience changed the way that you use social media? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm doing 100% of my interneting in private mode now. Hmm. Why? Because I don't want them to know what I'm looking at or looking for. But it also strikes me that the way that you were using social media before this happened was to connect with family and to keep people posted about what's going on in your life. And you could argue that this is a time when you want to do that more than ever, is be connected to people and and be able to reach out to people who can support you. Absolutely. So how do you how do you navigate that, like still wanting to I mean, use I'm it as a connective it. tool, but then also seeing so so viscerally like what the problems with that are? Yeah. I mean, when the letter went viral, there were a lot of people down in the comments saying like, We'll just stop using social media, duh. You know, and so sensitive. And, you know, and and it's that is not a realistic request, especially as you're saying it. Like, I need my community right now. I need people reaching out to me, and I also want to be telling people information once. Instead yeah, exactly. Of, you don't want to get a bunch right. of text messages. How's it going? Are you almost due? Right. And so, you know, I I communicated to people about what was happening because I was in labor for four days, you know, what what was happening, what we needed, what we didn't need. Um, you know, I was communicating all of that on Facebook. What advice do you have for other people who have suffered trauma and are on social media and navigating this kind of situation? <sighs> Um, I don't know. I, I don't know that I have advice. I mean, maybe I, I've heard some women say that when they've gone through this, they asked someone else, a friend, to sort of detox their social media to, you know, have them go in and change your ad settings. 
you know, that might have been helpful. But again, the parenting ads block doesn't really work. And, you know, look, like, on the list of horrible things when your baby is stillborn, this is not high on the list. But it's it's one of the only things that I feel like could change. You know, grief is grief, and it's always going to be hard. But there's this one aspect of the way grieving is happening now that could be fixed, that could be easier. Thank you so much, Gillian. Thank you. Gillian Brockell is a reporter for The Post. Facebook was designed to target people with ads. That is in Facebook's DNA. It's as fundamental a a part of the Facebook lifeblood as anything else. Drew Harwell is a national tech reporter for The Post. It's not designed to not show people ads. Drew says that one of the problems here is that social media platforms and their advertising systems weren't necessarily built to navigate things like grief and tragedy. But that doesn't mean companies like Facebook can't adapt. This is a scenario where common sense and moral responsibility says, maybe this is a situation where we shouldn't be targeting ads at people. There's this huge tension there between what Facebook is built to do from the ground up and what Facebook should be doing because it's the right thing. Why can't they respond to these kinds of situations? I think there's a lot of explanations for that. And I think in general, it's important to start with the basics, which is that what Facebook's workforce looks like does not look like the American population. It's it's more male. I mean, just just as a rule, and so and people are not thinking about the problems that women would experience. Yeah, and that's right. And so the problems that may be top of mind for women on Facebook may be very different from the top of mind problems for Facebook engineers. I think we have to remember that uh, there's there's a question of priorities there. But it's also, you know, a problem that the data that Facebook has on us is not always that accurate, and it's not always that immediate. And sometimes what Facebook knows about us is five years old or 10 years old or inaccurate to begin with. And so, you know, it's making inferences on who it thinks we are, even though those could be totally wrong. And even though our lives change every day, every minute. Those aren't always reflected in what Facebook realizes about us. So, you know, and and it seems yeah. like this is a problem about money too, right? Like that Facebook makes money by advertising to or getting as many eyes on their advertisements as possible. And so the idea that they would be doing something to limit the amount of money that they'd be making that maybe there's less of an, of an incentive to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Facebook creates a profile on us for the advertisers, effectively. I mean, that's that's what the business model is. They're, they're selling a glimpse of who we are to marketers who want something of what we are. They're not really selling us to us, right? And so if they are 95% right about targeting ads to pregnant women on Facebook, that's a win to them, even though 5% of the women may be 
getting ads that are totally wrong to them or harmful to them. And here's where we get into, you know, the, the, the real core of the problem, which is that the things we see on Facebook are put there for marketers' benefit. They're not put there because, you know, they are reflective of what we're really going through in our life in any given day. Drew Harwell is a national tech reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. The contestant on Jeopardy! changing how the game is played. Our returning champion, a professional sports gambler from Las Vegas, Nevada, James Holzhauer, whose 14-day cash winnings total $1,061,554. James Holzhauer is a professional sports gambler from Las Vegas. James has quickly become one of the most successful contestants ever to appear on Jeopardy. And entertainment reporter Emily R. says that that's all because of his unusual strategy. He's not just great at trivia. He's earning huge amounts of money as quickly as possible and then using it to make strategic bets. He has the top five highest single game winning amounts in the show's history. He's apparently unbeatable because he has developed a strategy that it seems like no one else in Jeopardy! history has really been able to master. You know, you start at the top of the board, you start with like the 200, 400 answers, and you kind of go down the category from the least amount to the highest amount. And James has started every game by going to the highest amount on the category. So he automatically skips down the board to 1,000 or 2,000 in the second round. And he's also looking for the daily doubles. So he doesn't go in order. He doesn't kind of follow the typical Jeopardy strategy. People just cannot catch up to him. You have just set a one-day record again, 131,000. And, you know, he's a gambler, so he's seen this before. He doesn't seem to care if he wins or loses, but since he's extremely good at trivia, he pretty much always wins and is racking up these insanely high amounts of money. So far, James has earned over $1 million. And as Alex Trebek put it, Ken Jennings, he currently holds the record for regular season games. He won 74 in a row, made $2.5 million, and James has almost half of that. Emily Yar covers entertainment for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories we cover today by going to our website, postreports.com, and joining on the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Martine Powers, and you can talk about the show using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Don't miss this electrifying conspiracy series when it